Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. In the wake of the much-vaunted Israel-UAE-Bahrain Accord, this week we take a stock of the situation in the Middle East with celebrated Israeli historian Professor Ilan Pape and see where this new development leaves the question of Palestine as well as the general state of human rights and civil rights in the region. Ilan Pape, it's great to have you back with us at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Welcome. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Khalil, on uh, this fantastic program. Good to hear you again. Thank you. So, Ilan, the UAE has decided to normalize relations with Israel and now Bahrain. This at the time when Israel has dropped all pretense of ever wanting to allow the existence of a future Palestinian state. And it's actually busy officially annexing more and more Palestinian and Syrian territory, allowing the most arrogant, least diplomatically inclined U.S. administration in modern history to claim so-called progress in the Middle East peace. The old principle of diplomacy, peace for land, that for decades seemed to to be the rule, at least the accepted uh, international consensus, at least on a rhetorical level, seems to have completely disappeared. Now, the more egregious and overt Israel's expansionism gets, the more it gets rewarded with recognition by Arab countries lining up to recognize it and normalize relations with it. Professor Pape, what do you make of this paradox? Yes, I, I agree. First of all, I agree. It is, a, it is a paradox. I think the main, it begins by identifying correctly the difference between the Trump administration and the previous American administration when it comes to the Palestine question. I think that the main difference still is in style and not in essence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think America was always a dishonest uh, broker. But uh, in a way, it did uh, not talk the talk of dishonesty, if you want. It walked the walk of dishonesty, but it didn't talk the talk of dishonesty. In this respect, Israel annexed incrementally parts of the West Bank and destroyed any chance for Palestinian statehood in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip long before Trump uh, became president. And while it was doing it, it was never stopped in any uh, meaningful way by any of the American administrations. So we have to be fair here and to say that the American administration before Trump also gave a green light to annexation, dispossession of Palestinians, the siege of Gaza, and other uh, crimes against humanity perpetrated by Israel against the Palestinians in the occupied territories. I think what is different now is is the this idea that something in the rhetoric or the symbolic side of things, which is also important in politics, has significantly changed. And uh, there's no need to play the game, so to speak. And therefore, we are exposed to the, the naked reality in its full kind of span. There are no more filters uh, for the general public. I think people who were activists uh, were never impressed by American policy before Trump or thought that America plays any positive role. That's for the Americans. As for the Arab regimes, again, I think we we are forgetting that Egypt and Jordan, long before the UAE and Bahrain normalized their relationship with Israel, fully understanding both the, uh, the late Anwar Sadat 
and the late uh, King Hossein of Jordan, fully understood the normalizing relationship with Israel would be at the expense of the Palestinians, would mean that Israel would have it much easier to implement its unilateral and continued dispossession of the Palestinians from Palestine. So I think we have to look at it at a larger context, but understand that, of course, there is now even less of a conversation, at least, less of an ethical conversation about this unjust policy. But the unjust policy itself was already there before. And God knows, as you're saying, symbols are important, especially in the Middle East, where at least there was some kind of consensus at the lip service level among most Arab countries that Palestine is an important issue. Now that's been dropped, and that's quite a, a startling change, even though it's only, as you point out, on the symbolic level. Yes, we still are at the same position we were after the peace, the bilateral peace between Israel and Jordan and Israel and Egypt. You have the same sense you have in the early 1990s that you have now, that these regimes, these Arab regimes that normalize a relationship with Israel, do not reflect in any way their own societies. Bahrain is a normal country, mm. and Bahrain has a, a civil society that uh, was very active during the Arab Spring and paid a very uh, high price for that. And this particular civil society is not be behind these policies of normalization. In fact, there is a direct link, as in Egypt and Jordan, between democratic movements and a demand for a, a genuine commitment to stand by Palestine and the Palestinians. Ever since the invasion of Iraq in 2003, much has been made of the tension between Sunni and Shia Islams and the Western media as the magic prism through which to explain every conflict in the Middle East. And now the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia is supposed to be the new key explaining almost everything including this new development we're witnessing as we speak of the UAE and Bahrain and perhaps others following, making nice with Israel. And this obviates the central question of Palestine. In the meantime, the alliance between colonialism, in this case Zionism, and anti-democratic regimes in the Arab world, which was pioneered by over half a century by, not officially, but was pioneered in any way by Jordanian and Moroccan monarchs, this alliance, this neo-colonialist alliance, seems to be completely ignored as a possible contributing factor, at least, to explain the strange bedfellows of Israel and the Arabian Gulf monarchies. Has the Palestinian problem been completely disappeared by Jared Kushner's magic wand, or has Palestine just become irrelevant? No, I, I think Palestine is still the issue. I think Palestine is still the only relevant issue in many ways, and I'll explain why. It's not the first time in history where you have an objective reality and it is manipulated in a way that is meant to serve governments, state, or movements. Take, for instance, the, the historical rift between Shias and, and Sunnis. Of course, it's, it's a fact of life. We're not saying that there are no Shias and Sunni Muslims. And during history, that this... Uh, theological struggle, if you want, or contradiction did not, was not used 
as a pretext by countries or kingdoms to expand or to defeat an enemy. But in the 21st century, if you look at the, the violent reality in many parts of the Arab world, where supposedly these are Shiites against Sunnis, you can actually see that, first of all, this in many places, these are oppressed minorities. Uh, in Iraq, it's almost an oppressed majority. Uh, these are oppressed uh, minorities or majorities that are trying to build a more equal uh, society, some of them using democratic means, some of them using non-democratic means. Even the Islamic State was born under, from a sense of oppression of Sunni minority tribes in Iraq and Ba'athi Iraqi officers in order to take care of their own interest rather than kind of, it was not a big theological kind right. of struggle right. in my it was, mind. It was uh, as a reaction of the U.S. purging. All, absolutely. All the, the what I'm trying to say here, I just want to complete this idea. The idea is, is the following. Most of the Sunnis and most of the Shiites in the Middle East have nothing to do with this conflict. There are certain groups and certain governments who take this obvious difference in interpreting Islam as a religion in order to further either regional interest or local interest. This is true about Iran. This is true about Saudi Arabia. This is true about the Hezbollah in Lebanon. And this is true also about the governments that claim to create the Sunni axis against them. The basic and here I'm coming to Palestine. I think the issue, the main issue in the Middle East from in this century, more than anything else, is human rights and civil rights. Not national rights, mm -hmm. not collective rights, not uh, who controls which territory, who controls which natural concessions. I think these are also important issues. But I think the main issue is human rights and civil rights. And these rights are abused by governments as well as by some of the movements that oppose governments and regime. And one of the reasons that there is no real genuine discussion about it is that the West has taught the Middle East that when it comes to the longest violation of human rights and civil rights, and the one that is denied, namely Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, they can be exempted from such a discussion. They're not part of this a discussion. And if they are not part of this discussion, and if there is a situation where human rights abusers are whitewashed, why should their human rights abusers not treated in the same way? And I think this is where the hypocrisy of the American policy comes into play, because it's very clear that still in the Cold War mentality, if you are with us, it doesn't matter what you do to your own citizens or others. And if you are against us, suddenly we will declare you as, as an enemy of democracy and human rights and civil rights. And I think this is something that sort of does not allow a genuine healing process or treatment of the more authentic problems of the region itself. In other words, this obsession and exclusive concentration on the problem of Iran versus Saudi Arabia does not explain everything here that we're witnessing. Uh, the fact that the UAE is coming into the embrace of, of Israel is not uh, strictly as it is portrayed in the media, in the Western media, as well, a fear of Iran. 
an interesting uh, thought that came to me, and I would like you to weigh in on it, is this uh, general movement that we're witnessing that's horrifying, but it's happening in front of our very eyes, this white supremacist movement now in power in the U.S. and the person of Trump, backed up by the GOP, as well as Zionism in Palestine, have in common a demographic problem, demographic question, that yeah. in that the populations they control are growing dangerously, seen from their point of view, dangerously out of control. And when you look at UAE, where anywhere between 5%, perhaps maximum 20% of the population only has citizenship rights and privileges, you start to see a minoritarian tendency to circle the wagons together. I'm just wondering whether you see that this common demographic obsession leading three anti-democratic minoritarian regimes, the U.S., Israel, and the UAE, to formalize what was until now just a tacit alliance. Are we seeing a, a circling of the wagons here at some deeper level? Quite possible. I think there are some differences between the, the cases, but there are some, you know, the three states of you one or three political entities, but have, have something in common. First of all, the U.S., the white population in the United States, and the European Jews who came to Palestine have something in common. They formed the settler colonial movement. And the settler colonial movement is one of its features, one of its main characteristics is that it had to deal with the presence of a native indigenous population. And it allowed itself, if you want morally from the very beginning, to think of ways of removing indigenous native people. And there was no, no inhibition, uh, whether it was a genocide in North America or the ethnic cleansing in Palestine. And I think that part of what you do as a settler colonial movement is dehumanizing people who are in your way. It doesn't matter if they're in your way because they are natives and you're a settler, or they are in your way because they do not like your style of regime, or uh, because you have created this kind of an apartheid system where you have a master's race and people who are hardly with any, any rights, as happened in South Africa. And I think this is something that goes back to the first question, I, uh, first issue I raised. This is, I think, the most important alliance that exists, which makes me, I know it's fun, it would sound funny, Halil, but makes me an optimist. Because this alliance is based on such a clear abuse of human rights and civil rights, both domestically and supporting other states' abuse of human rights and civil rights. Because of that, I don't think it has any moral standing. And I know I may sound naive, but I don't think that alliances that are, do not have even, you know, a modicum of moral cement in their creation, from my experience as an historian, do not last for too long. It's almost like building a bridge and you say, I will give up the mortar because I don't have the mortar. But hopefully the pillars would keep the bridge standing. Then comes a strong wind or whatever and shows you you're wrong. I, I think there's something there, especially in the age of Internet. And I think the COVID-19, we, we may talk about it, the COVID-19 crisis has contributed to this, this total 
lack of confidence in political elites. And interestingly, it doesn't matter whether the regime is democratic, at least in name, or not democratic. And it's a strong sense in the civil society that these are a group of, this is a group of people taking care of their own interests in the name of big ideologies, not because they believe in these big ideologies, but because they believe these big ideologies would re- retain them in power. We have the best example in Israel. I mean, Netanyahu, you would, no, no filmmaker would have invented such a character. He's only interested in staying in power. It's so clear now. We used to say 20 years ago, but nobody believed us. But now it's very clear. But he's just one example. I think Trump is another one. I think it's the ideology there is less important than the reason behind it. Of course, in America, it's a bit more complicated because I think his number two is an ideological person and the people around him are ideological supremacist, racist person, and he fits very well with it. But I think it is at the core is this dehumanization of your own society and other people's society and willing, so easily willing to have this alliance of tyrants or authoritarian rulers who have no roots in most sections of society, but always can carve out a a small group of kind of a power base that is uh, surrounding racist and misogynist and bigot uh, ideas. Professor Papa, Israel has become a recognized world leader in the use of cutting-edge national security technologies and the service of political repression and control the Palestinians being their hapless guinea pigs, with the threat of popular democracy movements throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Do you see these Arab monarchies and other dictatorships in the area and the region more desperate now for an enhanced alliance with the U.S. and therefore with Israel as well, especially now that such an ideal dictator like Trump is at the helm? Nobody in America is asking them for any accounts of how they're treating their people, etc. Can this tighter embrace of Israel be at least partly a result of increased fear of the restive and unrepresented demographic majorities in these countries? Well, first of all, I think some of these regimes got a big scare in 2012. Yes, yes. In the Arab <laughs> Spring. Whether the Arab Spring succeeded in their case or did not succeed, It was scary for them. And they were looking very hard for better means of strengthening their grip over any potential second spring, so to speak. And and you're absolutely right. Nobody in the region has developed the kind of capabilities that Israel has in controlling millions of people against their will. And definitely when a high-tech nation puts so much of its effort and energy in developing these kinds of capacities, regimes who want to make sure that they know beforehand if there's any, you know, undercurrents of resistance or opposition would find such an ally very useful. I also think that there is a certain group of Republicans in America who are quite eager to use these uh, methods. They tried, you know, you have this group in the West that they came out after 9-11 claiming that the so-called war of terrorism justified imposing emergency regulations that totally ignore basic human rights and civil rights. But this sort of petered out, unfortunately for them. 
So now they're using the other kind of situations like the Black, Black Lives Matters demonstration and so on, or maybe they will use the virus to justify uh, these kinds of actions. And I think that this is the most important expert commodity that Israel has to offer to the world and to the region. And I think that's part of the alliance. The second one is the one you pointed out. That's very clear that the regimes that seek close alliance with America see Israel as the main or the first port of call on the way to strengthen an alliance with the United States. But there's a nice twist, nice, I mean, it's quite horrific, but there's an interesting twist to it. These regimes are very, very keen of buying two kinds of capabilities. One is the one that Israel sells, you know, how to control your own population. The other one is building a military mind, mm-hmm. especially for prestige, not because it really can help them. Mm-hmm. And now they cannot buy the cutting edge of the new arms industry because Israel does, did not allow American arms experts to exports to go to Arab countries, which it regarded as enemies. Now, as we've seen in the case of the Emirates, this is going to disappear. So Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Bahrain, and the others who could buy the the F-35 or whatever it's called, and other kind of weapons of destruction that everybody understands do not contribute to the welfare and well-being of people in the region that needs economic thriving and prosperity and uh, social justice and not high military capabilities. And just to go back to uh, something I briefly alluded to earlier, Morocco was a pioneer in this kind of embrace, tight, very tight embrace of colonial powers and former colonial powers in 1963 when it basically sold its Jewish population to Israel. Absolutely, absolutely. It comes back to my mind, this is my angle on this as an historian, to the points of dehumanization, really. When suddenly the Jewish community in Morocco becomes an asset to be sold, not part of your own people. And they were an asset in the eyes of the Israelis as well. As you know, until the 1960s, Israel didn't want any Moroccan Jews. But they find out that they cannot get any more European Jews, so they were worried about the demographic balance, and they brought them to Palestine and pushed them to the geographical and social margins of the country because they didn't really see them as, as equal Jews to the European Jews. But I think this is the same malaise, so to speak, when the survival of a regime or survival of, of a country, of a government, is something that is being attained by all means possible. And there is no respect for human dignity, value, and so on. And for me, what is always missing, even among the left in the West, when they discuss these issues, is the exemption of what happened here in 1948, when Palestinians were seen as the commodity that Europe is selling in order not to deal with its own anti-Semitic past and particularly its horrific uh, chapter of the Holocaust. So yes, you can sell the Palestinians, throw them out, because Germany would become a new Germany, Europe could move on and wouldn't mean to deal with genocide that took place on its own continent. I see there all the time this connection. It is, I think you and I agree with this. If, if we don't apply universal values to everything that we are analyzing, 
everything that makes us angry, everything that we are protesting against and are willing even to struggle against, if we don't apply the same standards, what is humanity? What is the human value? What is human dignity? If we don't apply this in the same way, we allow these kinds of regime to continue and abuse these basic rights of other human beings, whether they are their own people or someone else's people or state. And in the case of the Moroccan Jews, which was very sad, I spoke with Mordechai Vanunu years ago. He was very regretful. He said that basically those poor Moroccans were sold a bill of goods, that they would have access to this milk and honey. They were very poor in Morocco for the most part. The Berber Jews, you know, in the mountains, and all of a sudden they find themselves in the middle of a desert as a buffer against the enemy. And, exactly. And, and this is what the value of uh, Moroccan Jews had. This was at the hands of a king who was not very popular, who suffered three attempts on his life in the following years, in the early 70s. There was a definite need on the part of the monarch, Hassan II, to scramble and find some strong support outside of Morocco which he didn't enjoy within his own country. So he became... Which is not unique. Exactly. Go on, sorry. No, no, so we are seeing that again, playing half a century later, it's still going on with other unpopular regimes like the Gulf monarchies. The crown princes of Saudi Arabia and the US, namely Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner, both of them wielding power conferred to them through blood, have worked closely together ever since Trump came to power. Yet Saudi Arabia has not officially joined the normalization of relations with Israel that it implicitly encourages in other Gulf countries. If not the desire to control Iran, as we briefly talked about, what is uh, Saudi's endgame in this uh, situation? What are the Saudis doing? I think there are a few things going on here. Interesting that you mention it today in, on Israeli television. There was an interview with the head of the Israeli Mossad who was very proud to tell how many, most of all hinting how many times he has met in the past uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So as if to say to the Israeli public, okay, yes, we will have an official or not an official. We are already good buddies for many, many years. Not that this is a big uh, secret. I think we are mm. all aware of it. This has been going on for a while, and especially since he became uh, the crown prince. I think you're absolutely right. I think there are two things here which are interesting to consider. One is this idea, of course, that if you want to survive as a Saudi royal house, you need the United States. And if you need the United States, you need uh, Israel as well. I think the survival uh, threat, uh, as far as they see it, is far more from the inside than from Iran. But of mm, course, this mm. is not admitted. Secondly, and I think that's very interesting, there is, there is a realization, which I think is, is genuine, that there will be a time, and it should be very, not in the very distant future, where oil would not be that kind of gold fountain anymore, you know, that there is a need for diversification of your richness, if you want, of your affluence, on the one hand, and secondly, that notions of social justice, despite everything all the capitalists will tell us, notions of social justice have not disappeared. Not from Saudi Arabia, not from Bahrain, and not from Palestine. Not, oh, definitely not from the United States. And I think this combination of richness that may not be as, as high as it was on the one hand, 
and the possibility that you might need to share it in a more just way on the other terrifies them. I think they're beginning to adopt this Israeli mentality that you can resolve everything with military power, Mm -hmm. which is crazy, I know. But, uh, you know, the Nazis had a similar ideology. They're not the only ones. I think there was a moment in the history of the Soviet Union when when they were in that kind of of mentality. This idea that your might is translated into military power and that assures you survival, your existence. History teaches us, by the way, that it's not working. Even the Crusaders tried to do this. But I think that's, that's at the heart of this whole issue, is this insane, in many ways insane, idea of what will sustain me in the future. I don't know if you remember, many, many years ago, there was an, a brilliant Egyptian scholar whose name now escaped me, but doesn't matter, it will come back to me in a second, who wrote a book, the title was Overstating the Arab State. And he showed how since the sykes picot agreements, Middle Eastern countries were built... years ago. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Were built on a very precarious structure. He called them the fierce states. He said these states don't are not strong states because they don't have, the regimes don't have strong roots in the, mm. among the people. So they are fierce states. They are fierce, not fear, fierce. They need five secret services. They need a strong army next to them. He wrote it, I think, in the 70s. This is still true. What he didn't realize, I think, is that it was true not just about the Arab world. It's true about more and more regimes around the world. Yes. Basically, as they see this noose of popular discontent tightening around their necks, they get more and more desperate and they get bolder in a way and more violent. And they're more interested in being very close to Israel and the United States. Yeah. By the way, I remember the name of the the author, Nazi Hayubi. Nazi Hayubi, who unfortunately died at the age of 39, who was a brilliant uh, scholar of the Arab world. And that's Professor Ilan Pape speaking with Khalil Bendib about the recent Israel-UAE-Bahrain Accord, the question of Palestine and the state of human rights and civil rights in the Middle East and North Africa. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You mentioned earlier that UAE definitely is interested in more weapons and military hardware, not just to to quell its own potential domestic problems, but for prestige. Is there also some adventurism on the part of UAE now feeling its oats, discovering itself a a quasi-imperialist power, you know, having something to say in Libya and having something to say in Egypt, and having something in Yemen, definitely Yemen. Yemen. 
So it's it's more than just prestige. They actually have these ambitions, it seems to me. Definitely. There's also an interesting competition with Qatar here, of course, because Qatar wields influence in the region not through military power, through its media networks and through other means. <laughs> I think there's a whole uh, you know generation of they're more or less the same age of people who run the Emirates and those little kingdoms there uh, and Saudi Arabia. And they have also an internal competition between them as well. I think one should not underestimate the personal <laughs> dimension of it. It seems crazy, but it's part of politics. It's definitely part of politics. But I think, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. And Israel can mesmerize you to believe that uh, you are now part of an alliance that could change the regional reality. By the way, we were there before. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, tried to create an alliance that included Ethiopia, Iran, and Turkey, and Israel. What was common to all these countries, they were all not Arabs ethnically, were not Arab states. He called it the non-Arab Middle Eastern Alliance. And for a moment, he succeeded in convincing the Iranians, this is, of course, the pre-revolutionary Iran, right? Yeah. And the Ethiopians, and this is the pre-revolutionary Ethiopia of Haile Selassie, that they will be powerful enough to kind of change the whole nature of the Arab world. The one country that was not willing, and because of that it all fell, was Turkey. Turkey understood, or the Turkish government at the time, understood that they are not going to replace the kind of relationship they want to build with the Arab Middle East, with this Jewish uh, bastion in the midst of it instead. And it didn't work. But I think Israel is doing now a different kind of an exercise, creating this boogeyman, Iran, trying to convince its potential new friends that there is a power there to change totally the reality on the ground. This is, of course, insane and it wouldn't work, but it has the destructive potential of adding to the misery of people in the area. That's the only outcome that can come out from this new maneuvers or kind of crypto diplomacy that they are now playing with. And of course, dividing to rule has always been the first principle of any colonialist power. You have to divide whatever is around you, wherever you land, you land there and your minority population, you have to manage to fragment and divide the opposition. And they still do Absolutely. that. They did it from the first moment they arrived, and then they invented after 48 a nice name for this in Israel. They call it active diplomacy. <laughs> that, that's when you try to employ on the ground the uh, divide-and-rule uh, policies. They call it active uh, diplomacy. So to come back to Palestine now, Uri of Neri, may he rest in peace, had explained in his weekly column years ago, he had predicted this when nobody, at least that I'm, I was aware of, was talking about why Israel would never willingly return the Golan Heights. And this had to do with a sillier kind of question, certainly not military. It was the only ski station in historic Palestine. And there was no way the Israelis, <laughs> the Israelis would ever let go of that. They wanted to be able to ski. So, <laughs> so lately, the, all pretenses have been dropped, not only for the Golan Heights, but for much of the West Bank as well. 
all pretenses of ever coming to an agreement with the Palestinians, that's thing of the past. Explain to us how Israel has over the past century steadily aimed for and achieved maximum expansion, regardless of whatever rhetoric was fashionable at the time, Oslo yeah. Accords, etc., etc., to just create the maximum some Palestinian bentu stands instead. It comes back to the definition of Zionism as settler colonialism and the state of Israel as a settler colonial state. And each settler colonial entity in history, and that includes Israel, has two dimensions it plays with, the geographical one and the demographic one the geography and the demography, if you want. And until 1967, the main effort was to take over the space that you believed was necessary for sustaining a Jewish state, which is the whole of historical Palestine between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean. And they achieved it in 67. Of course, the achievement of the geographical dimension, if you want, or of the space you needed, did not solve the issue of demography, the issue of population. And despite the ethnic cleansing of 1948, the greediness of 67 incorporated, again, a large number of Palestinians inside Israel. And I will come back to the Golan Heights in, in the end of my answer. In the case of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, the basic consensual Israeli policy since 1967 until today is, is based on two assumptions. One, we can only incrementally cause the Palestinians to leave. There hasn't been as yet a historical juncture that enabled us to do a mass expulsion as we did in 1948. And we have to take into account that doesn't mean that we should not continue incremental ethnic cleansing by various means of harassment, expulsions, and so on. That's the first, first assumption that is accepted by everyone, whether they're on the right or on the left. The second one is that because of that, it means, of course, there will always be, or at least for the foreseeable future, there will be a sizable Palestinian population within what you regard as your own homeland. So what do you do with this sizable population? In the West Bank, the principle that is now accepted by almost everyone is to partition the West Bank into a Jewish West Bank that eventually would be annexed to Israel. You can call it Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, which could be even more, and allow the Palestinians in what one can call the Area A and B of Oslo, which are 40% of the West Bank, to be run by a local authority under a very strict Israeli control. It's partitioning with enclaving into small Bantustan or mega prisons the Palestinians in the West Bank. They still haven't given up their idea of doing the same in Gaza because they believe that somehow they would defeat the Hamas. But even if they don't, it doesn't ruin their plans because they have created the mega prison in Gaza anyway. So it kind of uh, works for them as far as they are concerned. Interestingly, I just want to add to this the Golan Heights. Not many of your listeners would know, probably, that in 1967, Israel ethnically cleansed almost everyone who lived on the Golan Heights. These are 120,000 people that Israel kicked out within a few days. It destroyed more than 100 Syrian villages on the Golan Heights. Why is it important? 
because it shows you that Israel doesn't have a demographic problem in the Golan Heights. So the moment you have an area without a demographic problem, there's no way Israel would ever give it up. You see what I mean? It's, it's all gravy. That's, so, that's exactly what they want. That, and, that, and that's why officially they annexed the Golan Heights. I, I don't think they accepted an American administration ever to recognize that Trump was a bonus when he recognized it officially. But it was very clear to them that once they have succeeded because of the nature of the population and the size of the place to get rid of the population, then they have no problem. The issue for them, of course, are the Palestinians inside Israel and the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian refugees who are about six million today, if not more, because together with the Palestinian refugees, you still have a population of about 12 to 13 million Palestinians who belong in one way or another to the Palestine that Israel took over in 1948. Now, no treaty with Bahrain, no treaty with Saudi Arabia, no treaty with the United States of America can challenge that reality or can even help Israel to deal with that reality. That's what the Israelis are making the biggest mistake. It's almost like building 250 nuclear bombs to solve the Palestinian problem. How can you solve the Palestinian problem with a nuclear bomb? If you throw it on them, you throw it on yourself. So I think this is why, you know, you asked me very early on in our conversation, has not Palestine been kind of removed from the agenda? The political elite and mainstream media can remove it from the agenda. On the ground, anybody who lives in historical Palestine knows that it's here, alive and kicking. It's one of the youngest populations of the world. Half of the Palestinians are under 18. Yes, they seem to be defeated since the Second Intifada, but I'm an historian. I can tell you 10 years are not even a second in history. This is not over by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, they keep looking for the key that they lost where there is light, but not where they lost the key. <laughs> Very good. So the PLO's leadership has once more been weakened by these two new Arab regimes, completely abandoning the Palestinian cause, even as lip service. And yet the PLO shows no signs of giving up on the so-called two-state solution. Is there anything at all that can make it change its approach towards Israel, or is it irremediably wedded to the principle of beating a dead horse for the sake of its own self-preservation? I don't take a determinist view on this. I think that they will change. Uh, I don't know if they, namely the present leadership, as the leader is nearly 90 years old. I'm talking about the Palestinian leadership in potential that would grow out, out of this young population I just talked about. No, I meant specifically the Palestinian authorities. Yeah, the PA is not going immediately or in the near future to change its position, which is uh, a shame in many ways, because if this is not the last nail in their eyes in the coffin of the two states, what is? What is? What is? What is? I mean, what other proof do they need for <laughs> to see that this is a corpse that they are right. trying to resuscitate every time uh, fresh? But I think that among the kind of middle leadership, if one can call it, you know, the second row or second mm. uh, echelon mm. of mm. power, I can hear already 
uh, new thinking. I think there are two things to watch very interestingly. One is, of course, this internal change in the Palestinian leadership where they would come to a position who would say to the Israelis, okay, take the keys of the PA. They are under occupation anyway. So occupy us. Don't let us play this game that uh, right. we are on the way to statehood and so on. And be in a, a proper apartheid state. Why why messing around, you know? that That's one move that I think can happen. Not in a very distant uh, future. The second thing to follow, and uh, I was impressed by this when I visited Malaysia recently. There is a beginning of understanding among, again, not the PA, but in different other levels of leadership and on in the civil Palestinian society, that the West is not everything in the world, that there are other powers like Malaysia, like Indonesia, like South Africa, countries in Latin America, who would more easily accept, first of all, a change of a Palestinian vision, if the Palestinians will talk of democracy. They are much less religious about the two-state solution than the West is, on the one hand. And secondly, are important countries. When you talk either in South America or in Southeast Asia, and also South Africa. One thing which is very different from the U.S., and you will feel it if you go there, as one uh, politician said to me, here you don't walk on eggs when you talk about Palestine. When you talk about Palestine in the U.S., you look left and right, so the people will not accuse you of anti-Semitism. It's true about Europe. Mm-hmm. Or that uh, there is not a Jewish person in the crowd who would say, but you don't recognize my rights or whatever. This is not happening. In, and these are important parts of the world. And let's let's admit it, the U.S. does not look such a powerful power after the way it dealt with COVID-19. There are different constellations that a united Palestinian leadership with a clear vision that is based on democracy and human rights and civil rights could really use to change the balance of power on the ground. Continuing with the two-state solution, Continue with Pax Americana is not going to get us anywhere. Speaking of which, this united, unified Palestinian <coughs> leadership that we haven't seen yet, following this new deal between Israel, UAE, Bahrain, and the U.S., the PLO and Hamas jointly declared new intentions of working together on a more unified Palestinian approach. But we've heard that song before. Do you see light at the end of that tunnel of division among Palestinians anytime soon? Well, there is a closer cooperation, one should say, indeed. But as you say, I'm not totally optimistic about it because of the past. And because, especially on the part of the PA, I don't think there's a genuine desire for reconciliation. It's it's a reconciliation born out of a dire straits that they find themselves in. It's born out of despair. For it to succeed, it has to be born out of a genuine wish to reconcile and create a united front. Now, elsewhere in that that region, the eastern Mediterranean, with the sad developments in Libya, and as well in the agency, the tension between Greece and Turkey, some observers are starting to talk about a growing alliance, tacit alliance between against Turkey between Greece, France, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. France under President Macron apparently is returning to its old colonial ways, not only in Lebanon in the wake of the Beirut explosion, but also in Libya and now in Greece. I don't know if there's a nostalgia for a time when European powers like France were divvying up the spoils 
between themselves and Great Britain at the expense of the Ottoman Empire. What do you see happening there? Uh, because the questions of natural gas resources being carved up between Israel, even the, the PA, Egypt, Libya, Turkey, Greece, Cyprus, what do you see uh, going on there? I think this is uh, an interesting kind of alliance formed by neoliberalism, settler colonialism, and uh, dictatorships, if you want, in many ways, where, again, in a non-democratic way, there are people who are going to benefit from the discovery of new natural resources for the benefit of the few, but not for the many. And uh, in order to secure that, they need a particular political alliance to protect it, to safeguard it from sometimes from a legislation in the same countries that probably would have not allowed such a, a misuse of natural resources. And what is so interesting when this is the focus, namely money, mainly, you know, profits, how ideology adapts itself. And I'll give you an example. The Greek government that ratified the agreement with Israel uh, includes two ministers from the right wing that on paper are Holocaust deniers. I mean, they're really genuine mm. anti-Semites. I mean, not even soft ones, you know? They're mm. sort of hardcore. But that, of course, does not the deter them. Israelis, no. Never. Exactly, exactly. And in Lebanon, I don't have to tell you, I mean, Lebanon has all these different people in the name of sectarianism, but it's not sectarianism. These are very limited group of people who are taking care of their own financial interests in the name of their sect and are willing to do a lot of things to make sure that the lion's share of what could have been the Lebanese benefits or profits from this new discovery would be theirs. To this, you can add that because these are the consideration, it is definitely going to be an ecological uh, disaster. There's no doubt about it. When you do it like this, there's no way that people would take any uh, ecological consideration into consideration. It's very worrying for the Eastern Mediterranean uh, from an ecological point of view. Just look at uh, what's happening in California and uh, the west coast of, of the United States. Exactly. Exactly. Finally, if we could talk briefly about the COVID situation, which is very interesting where you are in uh, Israel-Palestine. The situation seems to have rebounded in ways that are very dramatic. Now there's a new confinement in force. And a lot of Israelis seem to really resent Bibi Netanyahu for the way he's handled the pandemic so far. Could you tell us a little bit more what's going on there? You're yeah. stuck there in a confined yeah. situation. <laughs> what is going yeah, on in Israel? Is it, yeah. has, it seems yeah. to have one of the highest mortality rates in the world, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely, you're right. So three levels here for conclusion. One is a total failure of the government to deal with the second wave. They dealt quite well with the first wave, but they did not think of any strategy of how to get out of the first lockdown. And you, if you don't have an exit strategy, you send the wrong message that actually everything is over. And, and when people think that everything is over, the COVID-19 comes back in force. So that's one level, a total mismanagement at the level of strategy. So that's one thing that's happening. Second, Netanyahu, because anything that's interesting now is his political survival, 
tries to navigate between impossible lobby groups. So he tries to appease the ultra-Orthodox Jews who have one of the highest level of people who were affected by the virus. And he tries to kind of negotiate with them politically, not on the basis of facts or medicine, what is the best way to satisfy them on the one end and to fight the COVID-19 on the other. What yeah. is to satisfy that particular community? They're the most affected, but they seem to also be resentful of any restraints. It's very strange. They feel, first of all, they have their own religious leaders who tell them that praying is more important than protecting yourself from the disease. So what do you do? If this is a religious imperative, uh, namely, not every rabbi, by the way, not every, they are divided to many sects and schools. So in some of them, you have this kind of approach. Secondly, and maybe they have a point, they say that the only thing the government knows to do, because it saves money, is to lock down an ultra-Orthodox city or neighborhood. But they say, maybe rightly, that if you lock down people who are ill, they would affect everyone else. What they suggest is taking out the people who have the virus, taking them out of these areas and putting them in hospitals or areas of recovery rather than locking down the city or the neighborhood. Uh, this the government is not doing because it has not prepared the infrastructure for that and doesn't have the funds for doing that or doesn't think about it. I don't know, whatever level. So th there are some justification in their criticism on the one hand and there is the problem with their kind of constant suspicion that this is directed against them because of who they are and not because of the levels of the disease. Uh, you can compare it to the Palestinian sector, which is, uh, of course, is affected, as in the United States, places which are socioeconomically poorer are affected more than the affluent communities. The Palestinian community is not an affluent community. They are also affected in a similar way to the ultra-Orthodox. However, they are far more aware of the need to look at it from a medical point of view, and they don't care about the ideological side of it. I mean, they know the government cares less about them, but they say genuinely that their way of life in cramped communities makes it very difficult to deal with it, but they have done quite a good job in the circumstances. But all in all, 80% of Israel is now affected by the virus. So it's not a matter of these two communities anymore. And they have done such a poor job. And at the third uh, level, I talked about three levels. So one is mismanagement. The second one is this whole issue of communities and how they react. And the third level is that, and this is not only in Israel, Israel has not invested in its health system for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have the capacity to deal with an Italian situation the first way. But you, you just mentioned 80% of Israel being affected. What do you mean by that? 80% is, in which way is it affected? I mean that we have a map of places where there is a relative oh. high portion of okay. people who have contracted the virus. It used to be 30 towns, and I suspect it's even more. I don't think there's one community where you don't have a relatively large number of people. Now, of course, some of them can be asymptomatic, but it's a matter of you stop the chain. Elon Pape is a professor of history and director 
of the European Center for Palestine Studies at Exeter University. He is the author of numerous books, including his most recent, The Biggest Prison on Earth, A History of the Occupied Territories. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezine. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <music>